Well, if you turn in your Bibles now, we are continuing our study in the book of John, the book of John, chapter three, book of John, chapter three. Our scripture reading will come from verses 22 to 36. And last week we looked at the account of Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, who was a Pharisee, who came to Jesus in the night to inquire as to who he was and to find out more about Jesus, who had just begun his public ministry. That was during the Passover. After the Passover, this time came when Jesus and his disciples went out near where John the Baptist was, and they were baptizing, and there is a controversy that occurs, and here it is recorded in John chapter 3, verse 22 through the end of the chapter. John chapter 3, verse 22. The text of Scripture reads, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, And people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who was the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony, has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life but the wrath of God abides on him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our Father in heaven, we come before your word. We ask, O God, that you would once again open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. O Father, we pray that illumine our minds, grant to us understanding, We pray, O Father, you would help me to divide your word 
faithfully and truthfully. In Jesus' name, Amen. Changes often bring a lot of stress. Changes often bring a lot of stress. From time to time, I have the opportunity to see a show when I go work out. It's HGTV or DIY Network. And they show shows about home remodeling projects. And if you've ever been a part of a home remodeling project or done some sort of renovation or home improvement, it's wonderful and exciting because you get to see within 30 minutes or 60 minutes some experts do a huge project and it always comes out perfectly. It always comes out nice and it always comes out for most of the time smoothly. There's a show called Renovation Realities, however, that the description reads, quote, home renovation looks so easy on TV. We see a project move so quickly and smoothly from start to finish and the results are always beautiful. But somewhere between before and after, there are always at least a few speed bumps. One great story that happens. Budgets skyrocket, tempers flare, relationships suffer, so on and so forth. The story goes. Isn't that true? The things that you see on TV, the projects that you endeavor to make, always cost more and always bring a lot of stress to your relationships. Those that you work with, those that you hire, and even within marriages. Tensions come when things like that happen, when changes occur. Tensions come when there's competition down the street. Maybe you're one who has a small business and you, you look at the business across the street and they're doing something that has a draw, that draws others to there and it brings into tension because you wish your business could be like that and, and you begin to compare and maybe you're a part of a sports team and for some reason your team isn't doing so well and you're looking at the other winning team and your coach is much more agitated because he wants to win. And there's a lot of tension because of the stress that comes and what we want and the desires that are there because we compare ourselves to how others are doing. Whether it is the expectations of a home improvement project, whether it is the expectations of a small business or of a sports team to do well. Whenever there's that comparison, there's often discontentment and that type of Discontentment breeds within the heart, breeds sin. There's an author named Peggy Noonan who wrote a book that, in which she said, I am talking with the head of a mighty American corporation. We're in his window-lined office high in midtown Manhattan. The view, silver skyscrapers stacked one against another dense, fine line, sparkling in the sun, is so perfect, so theatrical. It's like a scrim, like a fake backdrop for a 1930s movie about people in tuxes and tails. Edward Everett Hugh Horton could shake his cocktail shaker here. Fred and Ginger could banter on the phone. The CEO tells me it's annual report time. And he is looking forward to reading the reports of his competitors. Why, I ask. I wonder what he looks for when he reads the reports of the competition. He says, 
He always flips to the back to see what the other CEOs got as part of their deal. Corporate jets, private helicopters, whatever. We all do that, he says. We all want to see who has what, unquote. That kind of comparison brings in and breeds discontentment in the heart. And all sorts of things come out. Envy and jealousy, complaining, discontentment. That can happen as well in ministry. And here in this particular passage, that type of thing occurs within the heart of John's disciples. For John the Baptist and Jesus here are in the same vicinity. And both he and Jesus are baptizing individuals. And the context that is here is that John's disciples come to John and say, Look, the man that you were speaking of, everyone is going to him. And we see John's response, his godly response, and there are lessons there that we need to take note of and to learn from. Now, in this book, as you recall, in the book of John, John writes, John the Apostle writes in John 20, verse 31, that these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And that is the purpose of the Apostle John in writing the book of John. That people may know that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Son of God, and that we might have life in his name. And so he begins in chapter 1 with three groups of witnesses. First, his own witness, and he begins in John chapter 1. That the Word of God came. Word of God came. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, in verse 14, became flesh. And He bears witness to Christ as the living Word. And secondly, in chapter 1, John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist who begins testifying about who Jesus was. And then he begins the third group of witnesses in chapter 1. The witnesses of the first calling of the disciples. And then in chapter 2 we see Jesus begins his very public ministry with his first miracle, the transformation of water into wine during the wedding at Cana. Then... Jesus, during the Passover, enters in the temple. In his public ministry, he begins by overturning the tables of the money changers and driving out the mercenaries who are taking advantage of the people. Then during the Passover, we saw last week in chapter 3, how he has a conversation with Nicodemus about what it means and the importance and the necessity of being born again. If anyone is to see the kingdom of God, they are to be born again. A transformation of a new heart, not a renovation of the old, but a transformation and God will grant to them new life. And here... The text begins after these things about John's ministry in verse 22. After these things, after what things? After the things of the Passover. Jesus and his disciples, verse 22, come into the land of Judea. And there he begins baptizing. He and his disciples, his disciples, I should say, are baptizing individuals. Now, it's interesting here, just as a side note, in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were 
It's an interesting note that that is what they were doing. He commissions his disciples to be baptizing individuals. And this is an important side note to, to make because some, some have misunderstood and misunderstood the scriptures to teach that baptism is a requirement for salvation. And theologically, it's called baptismal regeneration. There are certain churches, there are certain groups of folks that believe in baptismal regeneration, where they believe that one needs to be baptized in order to be saved. Certain groups of churches, such as the Church of Christ, Boston Church of Christ, or other churches of Christ, oftentimes you have to keep in mind, perhaps they might teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But the scriptures teach that you do not. It is by grace that one is saved through faith. It is not a work. And to be baptized in order to be saved is to add a work to salvation. And it's important to note that Jesus himself was not baptizing individuals. If that was so important to salvation, Jesus himself would be baptizing. And they misinterpret a passage like Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and say that one needs to be baptized in order to be saved. Baptism is an act of obedience. It is a desire to obey and to be baptized as a public testimony of one's faith. But it is not a requirement for salvation. John here was baptizing in the same area that Jesus was baptizing his disciples, I should say. He was baptizing where there was much water, it says. And those who believe in immersion really like that idea because it supports the idea that it was by immersion. But you see, John the Baptist, as he comes here and he's baptizing, he was very popular. In fact, John was the last, John was the last prophet of the Old Testament era. No prophet had been heard of from the time of the Old Testament, from the end of the book of Malachi up until the time of John the Baptist. No prophet had been there on the scene for 400 years And so when John the Baptist came on the scene and he was baptizing and he was preaching powerfully a message of righteousness, a message of repentance, he was very popular. In fact, the Bible says in Mark chapter one, verse five, that all of Judea and Jerusalem was coming out to him to be baptized. People were coming by the throngs to be baptized, coming out to this guy who was out in the wilderness who was very different than others that they were so used to. John the Baptist wasn't some individual who was uh, just in the regular cloaks of the Pharisees. He wasn't the type that you would say would be the dress for success guy. He would eat grasshoppers and honey and he would be preaching out of the wilderness. And people would come. People would come to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now, what kind of baptism was this? This wasn't Christian baptism. Christian baptism is reflected in Romans 8 where one is baptized and it's reflective of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. But Christ hasn't died yet at this point in time. What kind of baptism was this? This was a baptism of repentance, a baptism of repentance. In Mark chapter 1, verse 5, when these people were coming out, it says that they were confessing their sins and they were being baptized. 
They're confessing their sins and being baptized and giving praise to God. And John was baptizing them as a symbol of their testimony of identification with being a follower of God in repentance of their sin. It was a baptism of repentance. And that was what baptism is about. It's about identifying oneself with Christ. Or in John the Baptist's case, identifying themselves with a repentant heart in following God. So they were being baptized. It is commanded for those who are believers. We were talking about it today, just in our, our membership class, about what it means to be baptized. It is commanded by God in Matthew 28. We are to be baptized as born-again believers, and God expects us to follow in baptism, to identify ourselves to identify ourselves as believers of what God has done within our own heart. So important was baptism in the New Testament after the church began that it occurred virtually immediately after a person was saved. In fact, in the New Testament times, if one was not baptized, then one would question whether or not one was actually saved in the New Testament times. Now, I realize in today's time, sometimes people, may people have certain concerns or fears about whatever it may be. But God helps us to overcome those fears. Some people are fearful of uh, giving their testimony in public. Some people are fearful of the water or what it might do, how they might look, etc. But God helps us to overcome those fears. And anyone who is a true believer is willing to be baptized because it is a command. I've baptized people who were, who were very fearful that their family would disown them. I've baptized people who were very fearful of how they might appear or how they might look or what they might say or what their family may think or whatever it may be because it is a command and they desire to obey God. Here these individuals were being baptized by John the Baptist and by Jesus And the section of this text talks about John up until verse 24, how he was baptizing and how people were coming and they were being baptized still by him. And then has a little side note, verse 24, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Now, why does it say that? Seems to be peripheral to the text, but it's not because perhaps the Apostle John very well knows that in the other Gospels, they launch right into John the Baptist, who had already been thrown into prison, who had already been arrested. And he was going to stay in prison for a whole year until he died because he was beheaded. But here, John the Apostle records that John the Baptist had not yet been thrown into prison. These are the events that had taken place. These are the events that had taken place. And here we look at verse 25 to 30. We see the context of John's ministry. He was baptizing and Jesus and his disciples had come. They were doing the same. And a discussion arose. And we see the humility of John here as his disciples come. They were having a discussion. And the text says, with a Jew, 
about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, very respectful term, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. That's somewhat of an exaggerated statement, but you can perhaps picture the frustration or the anxiety or the envy that may be coming out from the tone of the text. Everyone is going to this person that you were talking about. His name is Jesus beyond the river. Beyond the river. And so these disciples, they come with this very pressing concern. All are coming to him. Now, it's not like the Texans. You look in verse 23. People were still coming to John. People were still coming to John to be baptized in a baptism of repentance. But maybe it slowed down. Maybe it had plateaued. Maybe they saw some people in that group going over to be baptized by the disciples of Jesus, as it says in chapter 4, verse 2. It's not as if it completely stopped, but here, these disciples, they were in a somewhat of a quandary. It doesn't seem to make sense after all. What they're saying, because John's been saying to the people, look, I'm, I'm just a forerunner. And here, John's response teaches us a correct perspective on what ministry truly should be. His response is a godly response. And four particular aspects of John's response I think we can learn from. In a godly perspective, what ministry ought to be. The first is that We need to recognize that all ministry is from the Lord. All ministry is from the Lord. John, in his response to his disciples, says this. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. See, this is his response to his disciples of those that were following him. All ministry is from heaven. The disciples of John needed to recognize John's ministry wasn't because of what he was doing. It wasn't because of some slick advertising. It wasn't because of some program that he had. It was because of the hand of God. So there's no basis for them to compare uh, the ministries there. There's no basis to be jealous or envious or possessive. Because no true ministry, no true church happens without the hand of God. In fact, this is an axiomatic somewhat statement, isn't it? That everything that we have is given to us by the Lord. Is that not true? Everything that we have ever gained, everything that we've ever achieved, everything that we've earned, everything that we've won, is it not by the hand of God? Is it not by the grace of God? Our health, our life, our jobs, our families, our homes... Who we are, how God has made us. Exodus 4.11, God says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Nehemiah 9.6 says, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them 
and the heavenly host bows down before you. And once again in Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. And this is the very reason why there is no place for pride or jealousy or envy. This is the reason why there is no place to take glory for oneself. Because what we have received, what we have been receiving is a gift from our gracious God. And that is why God receives all the glory. That is why God receives all of the praise. Because whatever has been in our possession as stewards, it is by the gift and the grace of God. And John reminds his disciples of that. John reminds his disciples of that when he says, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Secondly, that we are to proclaim Christ, not ourselves, not a church, or not some Christian celebrity. We're to proclaim Christ. It says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent ahead of him. His disciples needed to recognize. John had been proclaiming all along, all along that he was not the Messiah. And so, too, we need to proclaim Christ. We don't proclaim ourselves. We don't proclaim a church. We don't proclaim a denomination. We don't proclaim a Christian celebrity. We proclaim Jesus Christ. We don't proclaim our own personal ministry or our own personal agenda because it's not about us. It is about the Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ might be made great. We're merely ambassadors, the text says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Paul writes, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Come to God. That's the appeal. One commentator aptly notes, quote, the measure of... Of success for any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. So when you evaluate a ministry, the question is, how many are following Christ? How many people love God all the more because of that ministry? We can throw a party and Give away prizes and attract a lot of people. But the numbers, not the point. As John the Baptist reminded the disciples, it is about Christ. The job of an ambassador is to represent and to proclaim the one who sent him, and that is Christ. Thirdly, we're to rejoice in kingdom successes. To rejoice in kingdom successes. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, it says. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. See, John wanted his followers to recognize, number one, all things are from God. Number two, that we're to be proclaiming Christ. But thirdly, to find joy in kingdom successes. To find joy when there is progress for the glory of God. And the illustration is taken from a, from a wedding, a context. 
And historically, there's been good evidence that in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia, there was a law that the friend of a bridegroom was forbidden under any circumstance to marry the bride, even if the bridegroom rejected her. And that explains why Samson, and remember in the book of Judges, Samson was outraged when his fiancée was, was given to his friend. And so here in this case, in John's context, where he gives this illustration in a marriage context, that he depicted himself as a friend of the groom, Christ, who is here to take his bride, his people. In other words, John sees himself as one who always will point to Christ. It's not about gathering as great a number of people as possible. That's what John was trying to communicate. It's to point to Christ. You know, when I've done weddings, you know, the bride and groom are coming up the aisle and, you know, the bridesmaids and the groomsmen are to look that way and they stop here. And when they come up onto the platform, what are they supposed to do? Well, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids are all to rotate and turn. So they're always facing, always facing the bride and the groom. They, they were, they're, they're always to be facing. They're not to be distracting. They're not to garner the attention for themselves. They are always to be facing the bride and the groom so that the attention is on them. It would be embarrassing if you had a, a groomsman who was blowing bubbles or looking around at the ceiling and everybody would be focused on them wondering what is, what is wrong? What are they looking at? That's not how we're to be. We're to be people who attract people to Christ. So when people looked at the disciples of John, they were to look at Jesus. They weren't, they weren't to be, these disciples of John weren't to be jealous. This wasn't a competition. If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, a few books over, the book of Philippians chapter 1, Paul has this very attitude. Because here he is in the book of Philippians chapter 1, he is in prison. He is in prison. <coughs> He's under the Praetorian Guard, under house arrest. And in chapter 1, verse 12, this is what Paul's attitude is. Even when he is in prison, he says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard, and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed to the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. You see, what mattered to Paul, even though he was in prison, was that Christ and the truth were being preached and being taught. Some had thought 
you know what? If I'm going to take a part of Paul's ministry because he's in prison and he cannot have the same impact as before, I'm going to take away part of his ministry. That'll cause him pain. They were doing out of selfish motives. But Paul said, you know what? It doesn't matter so much so as the fact that Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He wasn't rejoicing by the fact that, well, they were preaching what was false, but what was true. They were preaching Christ and he was rejoicing in kingdom progresses. There's always going to be the temptation to compare Sunday school class, small group, church, a ministry, whatever it may be. That's what John's disciples were doing. They weren't very happy. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a, uh, a type of ministry that you, you have for your own self and someone else is doing better. We're to be happy when the kingdom advances in what is true. Fourthly, we're to magnify Jesus and God. He must increase, verse 30. We are to magnify Jesus and God. He must increase, but I must decrease. You know, John's disciples were to realize that John was actually succeeding. He was being very successful. They should have, they should have come and praised him and said, you know what? This is really wonderful because people are going to Jesus. People are going to Jesus, the Messiah, the one that you've been telling us all about. People are going over to Jesus and his disciples and they're being baptized by his disciples. They were to get out of the way. That is the idea. They're to get out of the way. Corey Tenboom, who is well known for her role in helping Jews escape from the Nazis during World War II, of which a movie was made called The Hiding Place. She was asked once if it was difficult for her to remain humble. And her reply was this. She said, When Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises. Do you think that for one moment it ever entered into the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? She continued and said, If I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the honor. See, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. So that the surpassing greatness will be on the treasure in the earthen vessel, not on the vessel itself. We make God great. We make Christ great. That is what we're to do. And then John goes into explaining why we are to make God great because of Jesus' superiority. Verse 31. He comes from above. 
He's above all. He's from the earth. He who's from the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. In other words, Christ is superior. Christ is superior because he comes from heaven. He comes from heaven and heaven is above all. He knows the things that are in heaven. But if you're here on earth, what do we know? We know in our world that things that are here on the earth, our vision and our unsight is limited. But Christ, he knows all things. Christ is God himself and he sees and knows whatever the Father has revealed to him. And he is superior to all. He's not just some prophet or good man like some might purport. He is the Son of God. John goes on to expound on that. The world doesn't readily accept Christ and many will simply outrightly reject him. John ends the chapter, but... He ends it with this very fitting choice. Verse 35 and 36. It says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The choice is this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Those who believe will have eternal life. Those who place their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus will have eternal life. As we've looked at the past, last week, those who repent and turn, that is what true belief entails. But those who don't, don't obey the Son of God, they will not see life. And the wrath of God, it says, is upon them. Ephesians 5, 5 to 7 tells us, For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure or covetous man who is an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. See, the Lord Jesus came to save people from their sins. He came to save people from their sins. But those who refuse to turn to Christ already are under the judgment of God. And the summation of it is now, today, as God has said, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that God desires that you come in salvation to Him. And we have that opportunity to come to Him to receive the free gift of eternal life. Today is also the day that we have the choice to do what we do with our lives. Last Friday night, John Boucher came and he had a wonderful testimony about his missions to India and how his vision was that he would someday return to India as a missionary, for that is how he began many years ago. And he came and shared with us that that was his vision. After his kids would graduate from college and be independent, and after he retired, he would return to India. That is, until a close friend of his passed away and died. He was only in his mid-fifties or so. And John looked at his own life and he realized that life is short and he may not make it to retirement. His family history isn't necessarily one of longevity either. And no one knows. Even if one's family history has some history of longevity, it doesn't mean that one would ever live that long. And he decided he ought to reconsider his plans of serving the Lord later. 
Because we're never guaranteed another year. We're never guaranteed another month. We're never guaranteed another day. And so we make these decisions to serve God today. Steve Jobs, whom I don't believe knew the Lord, said something that was interesting in his commencement address at Stanford University a number of years ago. He said, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. Because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. That's an interesting statement from one who didn't know the Lord because death faced him in his cancer struggle. But James reminds us of that, that life is but a vapor. Our lives are but a vapor, like boiling water on a stove. It is there and disappears just like that. And the question for us today is, what are we doing to invest our lives in things that will matter for eternity? Or do we always put it off and say, tomorrow... Next year, after retire, I'll invest in the things that will matter. There is no guarantee that that day will ever come. What are we doing today? What are we going to be doing today in which we invest our lives for the things of eternity? Here in this transition from the old covenant, from the old promises of the Old Testament to the new, there's a transition that comes and an outlook that looks to Christ where John the Baptist points to the Lord Jesus Christ. John the Baptist says, you know what? It is Christ that is to be the center of all things. He must increase and we must decrease. But so oftentimes we look at our own lives and say, me first, my agenda, my plans for my life, my goals. And later on, when I have more time, it will be Christ. Is that how it's supposed to be? Christ is to be the center of what we proclaim, of why we live our lives today, of why we make the choices today that we make, that He must increase in what we do and how we live today for the glory of God, that He might increase all the more. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for what a privilege it is to be called children of God. And Father, we ask that you would continue, O God, to help us. Help us, O Father, to look to things above, not things that are here on the earth. To invest our lives in things that will last for eternity. To look to you and to give you glory, O Father, when your kingdom advances. To desire, O Father, that you would be made great among those that we live among, that we work among. That, Father, our testimony and our investment might be in the things of you for your glory and your name's sake.